I'm in the midst of uh, preparing for a series through First uh, and Second Thessalonians, but this morning I want us to consider a psalm. It's Psalm 138. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Uh, while you're turning there, I'm going to ask you a, a question. If you were approached by a recent convert, a, a new Christian, new follower of the Lord, and they asked you, what are the three most important characteristics of a Christian? Uh, what, what would you say? How would you respond to that? What if they asked you, could you boil it down to two? What are the two most important traits that ought to define and shape a Christian's life? What would you say? What if they said, what's the single most important characteristic of a Christian? What would it be? Well, there may be a a number of things that we're thinking about, uh, a number of things that might compete in our minds for that sort of chief or top spot. Um, But I think toward the very top, would certainly be cultivating a life of worship. Cultivating a life of worship. The Christian is characterized by many things. Our service to the Lord, the use of our gifts to extend His kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. Uh, Our calling as a part of the body, our one-anothering, our place in the community, the place of fellowship. Uh, Our call to be on mission to reach the lost. But indeed, all-encompassing behind all of it is this life that is seeking to bring glory uh, to the Lord. Not only did the Westminster Divines capture man's chief end as just that, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, but we hear Paul in places like 1 Corinthians 10.31 say, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Of God, So we turn to this psalm on indeed God's glory and the expression of, of our worship to the Lord, Psalm 138. So listen now to God's word. A psalm of David. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. For they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. While we don't see the word in English, worship, through this psalm, It is certainly expressed throughout this psalm. We hear the psalmist repeatedly expressing thanks, giving thanks to the Lord. He even says with his whole heart. Uh, He sings the praises of God. He mentions bowing down toward God's holy temple. A couple times he expresses gratitude for the Lord's steadfast love. So this is a psalm that is expressing worship. Yet when we think about that word worship, uh, which is used throughout 
the, the Old and New Testament, we're really considering a somewhat challenging or tricky or elusive word. If, if someone woke up this morning and thought to themselves, I, I'm going to go to church to worship the Lord, they may have meant in, in their minds a definition of worship that would be a time between 10.30 and 11.30 on the Lord's Day, a particular day, at 55 Trowbridge Road, uh, with the preaching of God's Word, the singing of hymns, and corporate prayer. And if one was thinking of worship in that way and defining it that way, they would be correct, in part. Uh, the Westminster Confession in chapter 21 on religious worship defines worship in that way as public worship or uh, public assembly. And indeed, God has prescribed worship in that way for the people of God to gather corporately, to be assembled together uh, for His glory, for our own good and sanctification. But in that same chapter, the confession goes on, and it also identifies private worship. That worship that a person offers privately, individually, really throughout the whole of their life, each passing day. So there's a sense in which all of one's life is to be an offering of worship uh, to the Lord. Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So our public worship is very important, but when we depart from here and we're no longer assembled as God's people, we don't cease from continuing to worship the Lord. So I want us to consider, first of all, from Psalm 138, the character of worship here, the character, the shape of worship. Verse 1, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. There's a few things that are giving some shape to the worship here that is expressed. One, it's with the whole heart, which means the thoughts, the, uh, the motives of the psalmist are sincere. That was something that at times in the life of Israel was absent or, or at least quite scarce. Uh, Jesus, remember, quoted the prophet Isaiah regarding the Pharisees from Isaiah 29, where the Lord said through the prophet, these people, they draw near to me with their lips and mouths, but their hearts, their hearts, that's the Lord speaking, are far from me. And we all know what it's like to be in a conversation with someone, and they're speaking to you. It might be a brother or sister in Christ, a friend, and maybe your, your husband or your wife, your, your spouse, and they're, they're going on, and they're telling you something, and time is going by, and all of a sudden you realize, I, I, was, not being, I was not paying attention. I, I wasn't following along. Right? And your mind's trying to catch up, putting the pieces uh, together. You were hearing them, but you weren't actually listening to them. You're physically present, but mentally and emotionally kind of checked out. Well, that can happen in the life of a believer for an extended period of time. Their heart, in a sense, is away from the Lord. Worship is a conversation. God is speaking he speaks from his word. He speaks by his providence in our lives. He speaks through his creation, as the psalmist elsewhere says. The heavens declare the glory of God. Right? The sky is his handiwork. And the Lord desires not only our time and space, but our hearts. And here in the psalm, I think 
our hearts come alive when we are seeing the hand of God at work. Our hearts come alive when we, are, when we have the eyes of faith to see how the Lord is working. He's at work. That's part of, I think, what is moving and kind of vibrating the heart of the psalmist here. Verse 7, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. Your right hand delivers me. So the psalmist here is seeing the Lord not as distant or aloof to the circumstances of his life. He sees God preserving, stretching out his hand, delivering. This God is active. He's at work. And and we see the work of God in this psalm all the more clearly when we look at it in light of the previous psalm. So if you turn back to Psalm 137, just briefly, we'll see that. In the previous psalm, it is a community lament. And the people of God are remembering their captivity in Babylon. So in verse 1, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. Verse 4, How shall we sing the Lord's song? in a foreign land. Remembering that time. There was a time when the captive Israelites were unable to sing in the presence of their heathen captors, even being made fun of by them in that psalm. But here in 138, a time now has come, not only when God's people will sing his praise, but the psalmist even anticipates a time when the heathens themselves will sing the praises of God. There in verse 4 of our text. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord. Anticipating that messianic age, the age in which we live, in the coming of Christ, in which the kings and rulers and And people from every nation, as we heard read earlier from Revelation, will stream stream to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his kingdom. How that ought to give us encouragement in the midst of times where we might see a spiraling of godlessness in society to remember God's unfolding purposes that we trust in his word, that it would fuel and give us strength. But it's not only our heart and affections that shape worship. Worship is also a verb. It is action. In fact, theologian uh, John Frame defines worship as, quote, the work of acknowledging the greatness of our covenant God. The work of acknowledging the greatness of our covenant God. Worship involves work, labor. It ought to be a labor of love, but labor... Uh, nonetheless. In both the Old and New Testament, there's two groups, groups of Hebrew and Greek terms that get translated to that word worship. One of them means to bow down or bend the knee. And uh, we see it in verse 2. I bow down. And that has to do with honoring the worth of another person. So that's very much directed to or, or connected to the place of the heart, honoring uh, someone else, honoring the Lord. But the other set of terms refers to labor or service, most often used in association with the priests in the Old Testament in their tabernacle and temple uh, duties. 
But remember who we are as the church of Christ. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2 tells us we are a royal and holy priesthood. We are a priesthood called to offer sacrifice to God. There's no longer a distinction between the high priest and common priest for our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, has offered himself as a sacrifice for sin once for all. And now we offer spiritual sacrifices in praise of God. And many are the ways in which we are to do this uh, through the whole of our lives. Whether it's the sacrifice of attending public worship and that labor of love, or meditating upon the truths of God's word, or simply acknowledging the greatness of God and the beauty of his creation and all that he has made. We are called to offer to God praise. What higher calling is there than that? To be living our lives as an offering uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice something unique about uh, the praise that the psalmist offers. The second line of verse 1. Before the gods, I sing your praise. Some believe that word gods, with a lowercase g, refers to kings, judges in Israel, uh, rulers of the earth. And it seems to be used that way elsewhere in Scripture, for example, in Psalm 82.6. And that would certainly fit, given the context, that this is a psalm attributed to David. And we remember God's promise to David in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, where he promised to make his kingdom in the name of David great in the earth. That, that as David sings the praise of God, rulers and kings will come to know the true God and they'll join in the chorus. There's others, however, like Alexander McLaren, they take the word gods to mean idols, false gods. That in the midst of the idolatry surrounding the people of God, here David, he sings the praise of the one true God. Either way, what we see here is that worship, whether we're in public worship or throughout the whole of our life, it is a witness. It has a witnessing aspect to it. It testifies of who God is and who His Son Jesus Christ is. So there's something bold, I think, about this worship that the psalmist is expressing. Before the gods, before the gods, I sing His praise. Something courageous here. And we all need a bold worship. We need to encourage one another in that way, in being bold, in living out our faith. Uh, remember Paul's words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is the power of God for his salvation. Why is David, uh, the psalmist, compelled to worship the Lord? What, what are the reasons? I think this point is crucial. On the one hand, a life of worship and praise is the result of God's work in one's own life. And we see that through the psalm. He's recognizing how God has worked in him. Verse 3, On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. Verse 7, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. So God had demonstrated his grace in the life of David. And, and David mentions something significant about that, and, and I think relevant for us in verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards 
the lowly. So that not only will the kings of the earth, in verse 4, those in high position see the greatness and glory of God, but this God, who is king of kings, takes notice of the humble, the lowly, the common, the poor, those seemingly insignificant in the world. John Calvin, on this verse, says, Though God is highly exalted, he takes notice of what might be thought to escape his observation. It's a wonderful thought. We're never out of sight or reach of God's caring hand, his providential hand. It would be unusual for someone in a high position, in a place of authority, perhaps a president of a country, a prime minister, a king or queen, to give special attention to the common, to the lowly. Uh, Their time, their energy is demanded by many responsibilities. They're often surrounded by other high officials, protected by armed guards, in some cases royal family. So even if you wanted their attention, it would be very difficult or nearly impossible to get it. I read just a couple days ago that for the 70th anniversary of the accession of Queen Elizabeth II from 1952 to next year, 2022, uh, there's going to be a platinum jubilee. And they advertise that they're advertising this as once-in-a-lifetime show, best of British ceremonial splendor. I don't know what that is, but the best of British ceremonial splendor. And on top of that, you can have lunch with the queen on the lawn of the Buckingham Palace. Now, I was thinking, I can picture the Buckingham Palace. I don't think there's a whole lot, whole lot of lawn there, but... If you're thinking of getting a ticket, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of attention from the queen. And yet this is one of the most marvelous, mysterious, but marvelous truths in Scripture. That the God of all creation has regard for the lowly. That he observes, that he draws near, that he's attentive to each one of his people. Most powerfully demonstrated in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his incarnation from the heights of heaven to uh, the lowliness of the earth. But I think there's something else, perhaps an even greater reason, that the psalmist is praising God. It's not only that the Lord has demonstrated his hand, his work in the life of David. He praises the Lord for who the Lord is. For who the Lord is. Verse 2, he gives thanks and he says, For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Twice, in verse 2 and 8, he refers to God's steadfast love, his faithfulness. We know that term, steadfast love, his hesed. It's used over 200 times in Scripture. Central to the very character of God, his steadfast love. It's referring to his commitment, his loyalty in caring for and loving his people. It's his reliable allegiance and willingness to do good for his people. It's his kindness. The psalmist has personally experienced this kindness, this love from God. But he praises the Lord not only because of what he has received from him, but for the glorious character of God for who he is in himself. John Piper asks this related and relevant question. What makes you feel more loved by God? 
that he makes much of you or that he enables you at great cost to himself to enjoy making much of him. Let me read that again. What makes you feel more loved by God? That he makes much of you or that he enables you at great cost to himself to enjoy making much of him. God does make much of his people in many places and in many ways. He makes much of us in making us heirs with his son. He makes much of us in assigning tremendous value to our lives, individually as his people, corporately as his church, the apple of his eye. He makes much of us, most of all, through the gift of his son for our redemption. So it is good to give thanks that God does make much of his church. But maybe it's even greater to respond to his goodness by living lives, making much of him. That's what we were made for. To promote his goodness. To promote his character. And indeed, his redeeming work. Like the psalmist, whose life and words are a display, promoting the character and the work of God, the word of God, the name of God. That's what our lives were meant for to promote, to be a display of God's greatness in Jesus Christ. I think this is an attack being made from the culture today on the church. It's an attack on the very character and goodness of the God we worship. James Boyce said, People attack God's covenant love because they want to substitute a religion of their own sullied works. If we think about it, that was Satan's uh, attack in the garden. In the Garden of Eden, it was an attack on the goodness of God. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Meaning, if God has forbidden one tree, he might as well have forbidden them all. Surely he doesn't have your interests in mind. You need to create your own path. You need to promote your own interests. Go your own way. And the Christian's response, our response, ought to be what we see in the heart of the psalmist. Seeking to live a life that is making much of God. And there are many ways we can do that when we speak and encourage one another in the gospel. We can make much of him when we courageously bear witness of his character and his greatness in the world. When we perhaps daily set aside the demands or chores of life to be still with the Lord. We can make much of him. The the irony as we come to a close, the paradox is that the more one seeks to glorify and exalt the Lord, the more actually they receive, the more they are filled and satisfied in the Lord. And you see an aspect of that in the the final verse, verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures Forever. The sense here is that just as God began that work in our lives, like Paul speaks about it in, in Galatians, we can count on him being committed to bringing it to completion. That is, God is after our good. God is after our good. He's committed to that. Yes, his aim is his own glory, and his aim is the joy and good of his people. I quoted John Piper earlier. Many of us are probably familiar with him and his ministry, continuing to minister and serve today, but he served uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church 
for over 30 years. I think he's written over 50 books, continuing to serve. Underneath uh, that man's ministry is a really a single statement that is from himself, and, and it reads this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I've read a decent amount uh, of John Piper's works, and, and I know one of his heroes, in fact, his probably central hero, is Jonathan Edwards. And he has said that he got that from Jonathan Edwards. Here's how Edwards put it. From the purest principles of reason, as well as from the fountain of revealed truth, God demonstrates that the chief and ultimate end of the supreme being of God in his creation and providence is the manifestation, the showing of his own glory in the highest happiness or joy of his creatures. So so God's chief aim is to manifest his own glory, but it's also the delight and joy of his people, which is found in living for him, living for his glory. I think that's what Paul's expressing in Philippians 3. For to me to live is Christ. For to me to live is Christ. For to me to live is to relish in the greatness of Christ. His kindness, his beauty, his cross, his majesty. To savor and to take pleasure in his presence. That's where joy is. And that's what brings glory to God. In your presence, the psalmist says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Let's pray together. A gracious Heavenly Father, we as your people offer to you praise and worship for how indeed glorious you are. You are glorious in your character, glorious in your wonderful works, your acts in creation, your acts in redemption. And Lord, how you have applied your redeeming work to our lives by your word and the ministry of your spirit so that our eyes can see and our hearts taste of your goodness. And may we savor that all the more, Lord. Uh, May you give us grace to be bold, wise, uh, to declare and make known uh, your greatness. And that in the midst of a world, uh, in opposition uh, to your very name and character. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.